Hello, I'm Angela Barnes, and I've just snuck on here to tell you that We Are History, the less than serious podcast hosted by me and John O'Farrell, has joined the Podmasters gang. And this is great news for us because not only are Podmasters purveyors of excellent podcasts, but neither John or I have ever been in a gang before, so we're obviously thrilled to bits. We Are History's seventh series will be launching very soon, but if you can't wait, you can listen right now to our entire back catalogue of 80 or so eclectic episodes. We bring you the most interesting stories we can find from the past, so have a listen if you'd like to know whether Vlad the Impaler's anger issues really earned him that nickname, or how a notorious family from Essex ended up declaring an independent country on a platform in the North Sea. Or maybe how a dead homeless Welshman changed Britain's fortunes in World War II. So that's We Are History. It might not change the world as much as the Black Death did, but it is a little bit funnier. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now? I'm Alexandre, your most loyal subject. On today's show... Kish, kish, bang, bang. Peaceful protesters against King Charles were arrested, seemingly, on the police's whim. Was this really the most democratic start to the Carolean age? Plus, take that, Rishi. Tories in meltdown, big gains for Labour, the Lib Dems and the Greens. What's the lay of the land after the local elections? And with Trump kicking off his campaign in... Waco, of all places, Tucker Carlson sacked and raging, and Ron DeSantis going after Disney, are these the dying spasms of the hard right, or is it mutating into something even more dystopian? Let's meet the panel. First up, it's the New Statesman's Rachel Cunliffe. Hello, Rachel. Rachel, the government has announced plans to allow pharmacists to prescribe drugs like antibiotics for certain common conditions. Perfectly sensible, isn't it? Well, this is part of uh, Rishi's Save the NHS mission. One of his one of his pledges at the start of the year. And uh, the idea is no one can get a GP appointment, but it's fine. We'll just let people go to pharmacies and then they won't need to see their GPs, which on the face of it, like, it is sensible in some ways, like other European countries allow prescriptions to be given out in, in pharmacies. A couple of issues, though. One is that one of the most terrifying threats to humanity is antibiotic resistance. Mm. Uh, and that's something that like disaster planners and scientists are really, really terrified of. And if you get people just being able to buy antibiotics over the counter at a pharmacy, it may be good for freeing up pressure on GPs, but it's not great for that. The other issue with it, though, is that we've also got a shortage of pharmacies. Uh, we, 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 <laughs> that is more of an issue, I think. So ph- pharmacies are closing down. We've got um, the, the, the lowest number of pharmacies think, since 2015, closing due to high operating costs and, and staffing costs and, and other lack of funding and other issues. So it does seem like it might just be moving pressure from one part of the health system to another part uh, and fundamentally it doesn't solve the the real problem which is we probably need a bit more money don't we also joining us is the chancellor of the university of kent and author of how britain ends gavin esler hello gavin hello hello alex and everybody Putin used Moscow's surprisingly bijou Victory Day parade to make yet another swivel-eyed speech in which he equated the war in Ukraine to Russia's involvement in World War II. Now, I'm old enough to remember the good old days of don't call it a war, it's a 10-day special military operation. It's quite the pivot, isn't it? Yes, but I actually think for the first time Putin might actually be onto something here because 
He wants to celebrate the end of World War II when he pretends that the Soviet Union was with the good guys. But the beginning of World War II, the Soviet Union, as we should all remember, was in cahoots with Hitler to invade Poland and then went on to invade Finland. So there is a parallel with the invasion of Ukraine and the kind of activities that are going on there. In other words, it began in a lie. It's still a lie. And so while we should, of course, understand the sacrifices made by Russian troops, including Ukrainian troops, actually, Soviet troops, uh, in World War II. The beginnings of World War II were just show exactly where Putin's roots really lie. Rounding off the panel is Time writer Yasmin Sarhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hi, Alex. Yasmin, the Writers Guild of America has begun its strike. I remember last time round in 2007, there was carnage on TV schedules. Productions ground to hold. There were half seasons of seven episodes, um, terrible shelved episodes being filmed. It was not good telly. Um, in the age of streaming, will we see a similar effect or is it a slightly more robust system? I think, unfortunately, we will see an effect, though not necessarily right away. Um, that is unless, of course, you watch late night U.S. television, in which case you may have seen that some of those shows have actually already gone dark. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, when it comes to shows of things that I'm sure you and I like uh, – the final series of Stranger Things has been paused as a result of the strike. Same thing for the next season of The Handmaid's Tale, I believe, as well as the new Games of Game of Thrones prequel coming out. So, you know, depending on how long the strike lasts, you may have to wait a bit longer than expected for those shows to return to your screens. And, you know, if history is any guide, it may be a while. But um, I think that that 2007 strike you mentioned, that lasted for 100 days. And the longest strike on record um, in 1988 lasted 153 days. And I think um, the writers in this strike today have said that they're ready to go for at least 100 days. So, you know, this could be a few months, um, if not longer. Before we start, a reminder that the next Oh God, What Now Live is fast approaching. The team are in London on Wednesday, the 24th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre, and they would love to see you there. Alex will be donning his finest stage wear. That will be a big thrill. And along with <laughs> Arthur, Arthur Snell and Marie Leconte and Ros Taylor will be keeping them all in check, we hope. It'll be a great evening of political back chat, analysis and squabbling. So don't miss it. Tickets are on sale now at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and Patreon people get a discount, of course. So just check your inboxes. Oh God, what now live? It's Glastonbury for politics addicts and with better weather. The tents have been cleared away from them all, the quiche remnants swept away, and even Rishi Sunak has been asked to leave the stage door area where he had been waiting to get his rare copy of Take That and Party on Vinyl signed. After another expensive instalment to the royal franchise, Highlander 3, The Hattening, if you will, we're now firmly in the Carolean age. Those who did go out to express their displeasure at the coronation were met with a police response emboldened by the Home Secretary's authoritarian tendencies and enabled by the government's new anti-protest laws. Despite agreeing a spot to protest with police ahead of the coronation, members of Republic were arrested and had their placards confiscated. Also arrested was a journalist filming the arrests. Oh, and some volunteers handing out rape alarms to women in Soho. On Tuesday, the Met cancelled several people's bail and expressed regret at some arrests. 
Rachel, the Met expressed regret. The Republic members were arrested. They don't accept that apology and they're taking legal advice. Surely the best way to avoid regret about an arrest is to not arrest people willy-nilly. I mean, I know it's a radical... <laughs> oh, it's, it's particularly radical if, if you're the Met Police. I've been really surprised by this because the coronation was not a hastily organised event. They have had six months to, to plan this. And even though people have said, well, we don't have big events like this all the time. We had the Jubilee. We had the, the Queen's funeral. We have big sporting events. You know, It wasn't that long ago that we, we had the Olympics. We need to have a police force that is capable of keeping our, our, our city, our country, particularly London, safe and also not being draconian authoritarians. Mm. And in recent years, it has felt there's been scandal after scandal after scandal when it comes to the Met, whose top priority seems to be protecting the Met rather than protecting London citizens or, you, you know, actually policing by by consent. And some of these were just so, so avoidable. So the six members of Republic who were arrested, they, they say actually that they had spoken to police liaison officers beforehand to say, we're going to do a protest. Is that OK? And the police had gone, yes, it's OK. Okay, and then they, they, they had them. submitted like an inventory of exactly. everything they would be bringing. Exactly. And th I think it is one thing that we really should focus on is that the thing that they were arrested for was having materials on them, having objects on them that the police said could potentially have been used for lock-ons. Now, this is a direct result of the public order bill that just passed. And when it was going through Parliament, lots of people, myself included, said, hang on, this gives police the power to make arrests before any disruption has taken place, before any Nothing has actually happened on the basis that disruption could take place. And we think that because of these very broad range of objects yeah. that somebody might be carrying. Like a bike lock. Like a bike or, lock. Or super glue. Or super glue. Or in, in this case, luggage straps, which were going to be used to secure the placards. And the police said, well, maybe you could potentially use that to tie yourself onto something. As it happened, sort of they couldn't. But when I said that, and I remember being on the radio saying that and having the person opposite me go, oh, but the police are going to use their common sense. Don't be hyperbolic. <laughs> Don't exaggerate. Actually, if you hand the police sweeping new powers and say you can arrest someone for having a bike lock or a luggage strap, guess what? They're going to use them. Mm. We, we, we warned about this. Um, and I think it's actually cast a, a shadow over what was quite a nice coronation. You know, it's, it's four days later and we're still talking about this and mm. we absolutely should be talking about it. But I don't think it does the police or the Home Office or indeed the monarchy any favours. Also, and I know some listeners won't want to hear the, this, but it wasn't that big an event. <laughs> it certainly wasn't as big as the organisers were expecting. I understand they had to shorten the route because there weren't uh, that many people to line it up and make it look full. It was also pouring with rain. Yeah. Um, now, responding to questions about the arrest, a Met police officer at the scene said, they're under arrest, end of. Is this the level of accountability the Met feel they owe the public under this new legislation? You saw like with COVID and with the COVID restrictions, there was a report from the Police Federation that came out that said that most police officers didn't understand the difference between the law and the guidance when it came to COVID. They just understood that they had new powers and they were going to use them and they used them wrongly in a lot of cases. It's the same thing now. And I think when you've got pressure from the Home Office saying under no circumstances can any disruption take place whatsoever, they very much erred on the 
the side of we're going to make sure there is no disruption and if we interfere with your democratic rights you know so be it mm. that's that's what happened and the the journalists being arrested and the women's safety volunteers being arrested for handing out rape alarms when they were on a scheme that was associated with the home office <laughs> and the met police itself. i mean you couldn't make it up could you yeah um it, it, hannah fern on this morning start your week from my sister podcast made a very good point she said that there's something very chilling about the metropolitan police's counter to the criticism which is basically well the whole thing went off uh, hitch free um and there's something really quite authoritarian in that you know at least the trains run on time sort of argument you know big big yeah because the rest of the people had a very nice date what does it matter if we arrested a few dozen people that shouldn't have been arrested um gavin the Met had briefed ahead of the event that they would show low tolerance for disruption, that's the quote, and promised, again I quote, to deal robustly with anyone intent on undermining this celebration. Is it not a political decision to choose which protests to police strictly and which protests not to police strictly? Yes, it is a political decision. And it's also, as far as I can see, one of the first times in in modern Britain, where people have been arrested for thought crimes, for things that they might do, they might think that they might do. And I, I don't know, I haven't seen the statistics, but I suspect more people were arrested at our coronation than on Putin's May Day parade. It's, it's a bit of a sad moment. I mean, I suspect it will do some good to the Republic cause. Uh, they will get a lot, they have got a lot of publicity out of it. They clearly have, in my view, the right to peacefully protest. And it is a kind of sad moment. And even the the stuff about, uh, uh, as you were talking about there, uh, rape alarms and the prospect of, of of noise and so on. I mean, these military parades where there are horses, the horses are trained to listen to brass bands going past and including fireworks in some cases. So it, it, there is a degree of nonsense. And flybys, which are incredibly noisy and frightening. Yeah, and I, I just think it's a, a, quite an extraordinary moment, really, for uh, in Britain that this that we are talking about uh, what is the the royal succession, uh, possibly the royal family, the House of Windsor, guaranteed the succession for decades to come. And actually, what we're talking about is the stupidity of some people uh, uh, in in arresting people who weren't causing any trouble. Labour said that something has gone wrong with the Met over the arrests of the protesters. But when David Lammy was asked if his party would roll back the legislation, he said it would take too much time to unpack it all. Um, have Labour, on this and other issues, basically accepted majoritarianism over democracy now? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, because certainly if they mean by majoritarianism, they've accepted, uh, I don't know quite what you mean there, whether you mean what the government thinks. And the government, as we know, is not a majority government. It's a majority in parliament, but not a majority of the British people. Maybe they, they think, maybe the Labour Party think it's too much trouble. Maybe they think they have to be seen to be solid on law and order, because that's one of the areas they don't want any, um, difficulty in the next 18 months leading up to the general election. I suspect that's that's part of it. But uh, I would have stopped David Lammy at the beginning of that sentence. There's something de deeply wrong with the Metropolitan Police. I think we all agree that. And even the Mets, the Mets commissioner agrees that. So that's where we need to focus, it seems to me. And to give 
to give more and very vague powers to the police, which can be used and have the appearance of being used to a political end. I think that's very unfortunate for the police as well as the rest of us. Yes, I think this, as Rachel said, this was all sadly very, very predictable. Um, Yasmin, Scotland Yard Chief Sir Mark Rowley is standing by his officers and on the the rape alarms issue says they were responding to rapidly developing intelligence suggesting some demonstrators had conspired to use rape alarms to cause distress to military horses, as Gavin was saying, which might have caused multiple serious injuries. Does he have a point, though, whether every single arrest was right or wrong or justified or not? Policing a large event like this is a really complicated affair, and the paramount factor is public safety. So officers on the ground have to make moment-to-moment decisions, and they may not get all of them right. Yeah, I mean, it it goes without saying that policing an event of the size and magnitude of a coronation was always going to be challenging. You know, I was on the ground that day running around and I can attest to a fact that to the fact that there were a lot of people there and there was a police presence to match. I, I think the Met deployed 11,500 officers, um, the largest security operation uh, that the organize, organization has said that it's ever led. So, you know, th- there was a big police presence. All that said though, I, I don't know. I just don't really buy the notion that these arrests were justified but by, pe- by fear of people misusing rape alarms. I mean, I think on the, the one hand, to the first point that, that was raised by you and Rachel, the, the protesters in question, the ones that principally the Met have been apologizing over, um, you know, they, they weren't armed with, with alarms. Um, I, I know that, they, that the police did arrest a few people who were passing around rape alarms in Soho. Um, I must say just separately that the fact that the Met Police of, of all institutions, which has had its fair share, fair share of issues with sexual assault allegations, the fact that they're confiscating rape alarms is just yeah. is a terrible did, did look on not, its own. Did they not realise how that would look? Did yes, they not I mean, evidently cracking down on rape alarms. <laughs> evidently not. Yes, I mean, you know, you, you, you tip, even putting that aside, I mean, the, the fact that, you know, the, the, the protesters that they were expecting, which, you know, Graham Smith was speaking to every media outlet, including Time, advertising what they were going to be doing. At most, there were going to be maybe a thousand to at a push, two thousand protesters there. Even if every one of them had had an alarm of some sorts. I mean, I was out there on the day. It was a very noisy event, as Gavin mentioned. You know, military horses are trained for these types of scenarios. I just really don't think that that alone is a justification that you know, one could easily be like, you know what, actually, they did have a point. I kind of get that. I mean, I I have a lot of compassion for the fact that this is a very stressful event and they want it to go without a hitch. But to Rachel's point, they also had a considerable amount of time to plan. I mean, the Queen died in September. They knew this was coming. And and yeah, I just, I, I don't know, that just didn't really wash for me. Yes, I mean, various news anchors and pundits uh, kept repeating this phrase that um, kept pinging in my ears. The world's eyes are on Britain. Um, as a relatively recent arrival yourself, what would those eyes have seen exactly on Sunday? Glorious pomp or sort of picturesque dysfunction? Uh, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I think the monarchy is certainly <laughs> no exception there. I mean, you know, while... while well, well, that's exert- a very diplomatic answer, <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to get at is, on the one hand, we're trying to do this whole global Britain, we're going to be a tech superpower. If you want to research AI, this is the place to do it. And on the other hand, 
you know, we're anointing some old geezer with oil and a special spoon. I mean, do those images mesh together? I I was going to say, I mean, you know, I'm saying this as an American knowing full well, and I saw a lot of them, that there are many of my fellow compatriots who absolutely eat this stuff up. Things like Hamilton notwithstanding, I still don't have <laughs> fascination. But um, but yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was definitely. I feel like the the whole coronation spectacle um, was like a a great study in contrasts. I mean, you had this multi million pound event set against the backdrop of a cost of living crisis. Britain, you had, as you were saying, kind of all the sort of absurd centuries old rituals being broadcast on like every form of social media, including like TikTok with like everyone seeming, I mean, that's all I've been targeted with for days, even now. Even just walking around the coronation, I mean, you had these sort of deferential Britons wearing fake crowns stood next to, you know, the occasional protester decked out in yellow, holding not my king. So I think anyone tuning into the coronation from further afield probably just would have been like just seen yeah uh, this great <laughs> study in contrast and of course you had you know this like incredible like you know majestic event and then just miserable weather so yeah. <laughs> yes if that's not the essence of it i don't know what is rachel y- y- you were you were on the mall last week the mall i think the mall the for mall, this one yes. right um before the coronation began meeting the people camped out there and some of them have been around for multiple jubilees weddings royal birthdays they're like um repeat offenders I oh guess. very much so um what do you think motivates people like that to support a monarchy that may never actually acknowledge them? Well, firstly, a lot of them there, it wasn't their monarchy in in the first place. So I went on Wednesday night. So if they were camping on Wednesday night, that's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that's three nights of camping. Uh, and I met a woman who, okay, she was, she was from Bristol, but she was there with uh, her friends from Kansas, who I don't believe recognize King Charles as, as their monarch. Maybe, well, I don't know. Kansas. Maybe is they, a... they want to be a breakaway state. Um, and she, Kansas is a close call. <laughs> she had brought, this is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen, a life-sized cardboard cutout of Charles and Camilla, except round Camilla's face, there were perforations. And it was very clear that you were meant to sort of pop her face out so you could stand with your face in there and have your photo taken as the spouse of King Charles. It was very, very weird, but she was very happy about it. And she said that she'd actually met her friends from Kansas and some others from Uruguay, who again, I don't believe recognise the British monarchy. uh, And she'd met them at the Jubilee. And this was like a, a, a reunion. Um, and I spoke to a woman from from Canada, and okay, so they do recognise the British royal family. Uh, and this was her seventh event. She said she'd been to two royal weddings, two jubilees, a birthday, a funeral, and now the coronation, which is a lesser known Richard Curtis film. Um, and she was having a lovely time there with, with her husband. So, yeah, it's all a bit odd. And I don't actually think it's really about the monarchy at all. I think it's about a community. Clearly, these are people who return again and again and again, and they like that aspect of it. And, you know, I queued overnight for the last Harry Potter book. So we've all got our obsessions. <laughs> and there happens what to be the royal family. What a window to your soul. <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things about uh, the British monarchy is that the British Council does opinion polls and uh, asks people around the world, particularly in the United States, what they think about uh, Britain, what their view of Britain is. 
And their view of Britain is as a kind of cultural museum piece, uh, very often. It is, they like the culture, they like Harry Potter, they kind of like the idea of Shakespeare, they like the old towns, they like the monarchy because they like the traditions. But the British Council themselves, for at least at least since the 1990s, has been very worried that that means that Britain is seen as some kind of archaic place where we worship the past, but we don't really have much of a future. And that remains still a problem. And so when you have this glorious celebration, which was all very nice and very good for television audiences, it actually reinforces both a positive image, because we've changed our head of state without having to have Donald Trump or without having to have a revolution. Nobody got shot. It's all all wonderful. On the other hand, it's all archaic and kind of false archaic, because you know what? They don't have to go in carriages up the mall at all. They could drive. You know, there's all kinds of things that could be done slightly differently. And all these traditions are including, you know, rubbing the olive oil or whatever it is, or is it oil from the Mount of Olives? I'm never quite do sure. Know, do you want to know what the original oil was, the traditional oil? It included, oh, go on. Yes, please. It included uh, ambergris, which is a fancy word for whale vomit, and a secretion massaged from the anal glands of a civet. Ah, oh, right. Geez. You hear that, American listeners? <laughs> This is what you're so crazy about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this 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 ointment will soon be on eBay, I have no doubt. Um, to to quote the great Logan Roy, "I love you, but you're not serious people." Um, Gavin Scots have a very robust national identity, which is distinct in many ways from what we think of as Britishness. When you look at the coronation jamboree, do you get the sense that Britishness on this sort of occasion is has actually become shorthand for Englishness? Well, that's not the way it's presented because they went out of their way to make it appear diverse. There was, uh, I wear the kilt and I have to say I suffered from serious sporran envy because there was somebody with a sporran which was absolutely <laughs> enormous. Uh, I don't have one quite that big, but there we are. That's my personal problem. Um, uh, more, more seriously, though, look, uh, we mourned last year Queen Elizabeth II. There was no Queen Elizabeth I in Scotland. Queen Elizabeth I was an English queen. And so if we're talking about the monarchy of the United Kingdom, and never mind the sort of fact that Saxe-Coburg-Gotha and uh, the House of Windsor changed its names and so on, um, or Walter Badgett writing the English Constitution, he didn't write a book called the British Constitution. I don't think people in Scotland actually care very much about that uh, terribly, but it's just something that uh, people notice and they notice the way in which um, the Westminster government in particular seems to be very much in the words of um, Gordon Brown and actually of the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland and even of Mark Drakeford in Wales, an English nationalist government. Those are the words that were used about Boris Johnson's government. So it um, uh, this is a moment of coming together and the royal family are very well received in Balmoral and in Scotland in general. But there's also an undercurrent of actually much of this was a very English celebration of Englishness, not necessarily of Britishness, despite the attempts at diversity. Yasmin, uh, to round this off, you wrote for Time on the day that this police overreach may actually end up bolstering support for the Republican cause. 
um, as Gavard, I think, mentioned. Might Charles be among the people fuming about this, actually? As the head of the so-called firm, I, I feel like the king has to be somewhat, if, if not publicly, then at least privately sensitive to British public opinion on the monarchy. And, and certainly, the, you know, the, the idea being pushed by a republic, the group that, you know, monarchy and democracy are just... Are incompatible. Exactly. They can't, they can't really coexist. Um, I think we've seen indications of that sensitivity. I mean, you know, the king talking about wanting a scaled down royal family or working royal family, at least, um, his support for researching the monarchy's ties to the slave trade. Um, he seems more receptive to, to kind of the criticisms and, and engaging with them in a meaningful way than perhaps his predecessors were. Um, but, you know, look, he has effectively has one job, which is to to make sure that the institution um, can, can pass to the next generation, to to his son, Prince William, in one piece. Um, and, and I think whilst it's unlikely that British public opinion is going to change a whole lot in the span of his reign, whether that's, you know, two or three decades or however long, I, I still think it's something that he'll he'll no doubt be mindful of. Um whether we we see the the police, I mean, we, the the good news, I guess, is that we won't actually hopefully have to worry about many more big royal events for at least another nine years. Is that right? Barring unforeseen. Please no, I'm so done. I'm so done with the royal covers. I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think a friend of mine uh, put it absolutely perfectly to me, and I'd like to. I'd like to give her the final word. She said, "What was fundamentally un-British about the weekend was this division between reverence and ridicule, because actually the most British thing to do is to be doing both things at the same time, to be treating it with." both reverence and ridicule. Now, I don't know why it should come as a surprise that the government's inability to manage anything includes expectations. For two weeks, the Tories toured studios saying we might lose a thousand seats, you know, giggling behind their hand fans at how clever they were being because they only really expected to lose more like 700. Well, after nearly a decade and a half of mismanagement, vitriol and scandal, they managed to best Theresa May's low point by losing 1,063, including Bellwell like Stoke and Plymouth. It turns out that being photographed looking at a pothole, then not fixing it, didn't do the trick. But are these results the slam dunk that Labour needs to be confident of a general election victory next year? Gavin, why were these locals seen as particularly important? I think they were seen as particularly important for a, no, for a number of reasons. One is they're the biggest test of public opinion that we can have uh, prior to the general election. Secondly, uh, Scotland and London, two areas where Labour quite often does well, were not part of this. So uh, that's very interesting in itself. And I think listening to the results coming in, I uh, recalled something that uh, James Callaghan, the Prime Minister in the 1970s, said about his enormous election defeat by Mrs. Thatcher. He said, sometimes there's a sea change in politics. And if you're a prime minister, as he was, there's not much you can do about it. And I definitely got the impression that while people haven't entirely bought into Labour, they bought into anything but the Conservatives. And in our political system, that can be very, very damaging for the Conservatives. So I'm not sure what Rishi Sunak can do. 
But um, I, I do think that the sort of recitation of we're going to cut inflation, we're going to stop the boats and so on, I think that is has has worn thin if it was ever thick at, at all. It seems he's in real difficulty. Yasmin, um, earlier this month, a poll found that only 20% of people believe Sunak cares about people like me. Yet he's more popular than his party and by quite a long way. Is that an encouraging sign, do you think, that he can turn things around? He, can he rub off on the Tory party? Or is it an indication that the Tory brand has become so toxified that even a sort of competent-looking, relatively not despised leader can't do anything about it? I, I think as we just established, being more popular than the Tory party is a embarrassingly low bar. Um, so I don't <laughs> think that that is necessarily um, encouraging. You know, while, while he certainly may look more competent and kind of managerial and technocratic than his recent predecessors, um, you know, we have to remember that he's going to be facing an opponent in, you know, the leader of the Labour Party who who is seen as kind of every bit as competent and managerial and technocratic as he is, if not more so. And I think the disadvantage that Sunak is going to have in, in that race, and I, I know this isn't a presidential system, but, you know, if, if we're primarily looking at kind of the two potential, most likely potential leadership candidates, um, you know, Sunak is going to have the disadvantage of being weighed down by 13 years of Tory governance um, and not particularly um, exciting 13 years, at least certainly not the last well, I've been here six years and I don't, you know, just based off of that alone, I think it's been kind of, you know, seemingly since a permacrisis. Um, so I, I don't think he alone is going to be able to overcome that. I don't think he has the, um, yeah, the charisma, the, the personality to, to kind of, you know, give the Tory party a better sheen. Rachel, how would you assess Labour's performance? The national share projection has them on 35% versus the Tories on 26%. Sir John Curtis warned explicitly against people applying that to a general election, only for everyone promptly to do exactly that. Um, and, and if you were to do that, it shows Labour winning the next election, but not with an outright majority. What do you reckon? So firstly, I should say that if you want to go into this in detail, my colleague at the New Statesman, Ben Walker, has a post out, an article out uh, this week on exactly this. How much can you read local election results into national uh, national figures and the answer is it's helpful to a point but they are not the same thing the kind of voters who turn out for local elections are not the voters who turn out for a general you get lower turnout you get um, just less enthusiasm all round and you also get smaller parties and independent candidates making a really really good showing the Lib Dems are a machine when it comes to local elections same with the Greens same with independent candidates uh, and the big parties always tend to suffer because it's it's sort of a protest vote and it's sort of about potholes and it's also about how you feel about the, the the two main parties as well and wanting to punish them so there are a lot of caveats to that Labour's lead uh, as of today looks like it's down to 12 points above the the Tories which is obviously lower than it has been but that's still a pretty substantial lead and I thought Keir Starmer's reaction uh, on Tuesday was was the right one he basically said look at how much the the public hate the, the Tories look at how eager they are to, to get them out he said the NHS trumps woke every day of the week and I think one of the things the Tories really have to think about is they went hard into this election with stop the boats and you know Labour doesn't know how to define a woman and uh 
with Lee Anderson saying bring back the death penalty, although he he didn't do that in the campaign. But you know, people don't need food banks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, forget how poor you are at the moment. And actually, every single story that's come out sort of since the coronation has been a, a cost of living related story. There's mm. a sort of story in the mirror about how many Brits uh, have missed bill payments because they don't have the money in, in April. There's a story uh, in on the FT, which is about uh, water companies paying massive dividends, despite the fact that they're not investing in infrastructure and they're discharging sewage into our rivers and our seas. There are stories about um, the, the rental crisis absolutely every day about food inflation and the fact that food wholesale prices have come down but they have prices haven't come down at the supermarket so consumers are suffering like this is the stuff that matters yeah. and that's before you get onto the nhs this is the stuff that matters and i think that the tory strategy of let's just talk about stopping the boats and hope that people forget how hard life is at the moment that didn't work and as long as labor can offer something on the sort of material things that really matters to people that's going to be their their winning strategy for an mm. election um we love ben um and maybe we should have him uh, on again he was on just before the election ben's great he said he, he, he won his stuff. local council seat he's gonna yeah. be a councillor in cheshire um uh, so the counterpoint another man we love rafa bear um, he writes, the electoral geography of the coming battle looks auspicious for tactical vo- voting. The battle lines carve up the task of deposing conservatives quite neatly between Labour and Lib Dems. There is an equally possible sort of wipeout scenario mm. for the conservatives, right? That that if because if you add up actually Labour and the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, and you look at how poorly reform and that kind of party uh, performed, there is beginning to coalesce a really big, big majority that's against them. And if that manages to vote strategically, they're looking at a wipeout, really, at the next general election. Yeah. So I think there's one marginal seat that's Lib Dem Labour, which I believe is Sheffield Hallam. All the rest, it's pretty obvious in your constituency who the main opponents to the Tories are. And it's been really interesting to me how the narrative, the Tories have been trying really hard to make the narrative of these elections, coalition of chaos, hung parliament, Keir Starmer can't do it on his own, when really the narrative is people really, really want the Conservatives out Mm. and they will vote for whoever in their local area they think is best able to do that. And that is true in the red wall seats in the north and it's true in the blue wall, leafy, suburban, Lib Dem, conservative marginals or or safe seats in in the south. It's true when there are large graduate populations. It's true when populations are are poorer and are really, really feeling the cost of living crisis. It's true basically everywhere. And that's before you get to London and Scotland. Mm. So yes, I think the Conservatives should be very, very worried about this. Gavin, Scotland was mentioned a lot in the post-match analysis, as it were as a counter-narrative to the relatively low projected share for Labour in England. Um, Labour seem to have quite big expectation of winning loads of seats back there. Are they realistic, do you think? I think they are. I mean, I uh, about 10 days ago, just before these elections, I had a chat, long chat with uh, Anna Sarwar, the Labour leader in Scotland, new Labour leader in Scotland. He's a very intelligent guy. He is uh, he's a very intelligent guy. He uh, is convinced that the time is right for a Labour breakthrough again in Scotland. And you've got to remember that they were reduced to one seat out of the 59 Westminster seats in Scotland by the SNP. And the SNP, we all, we all know their difficulties. So uh, 
Uh, Sawar himself um, lost his seat in 2015 in Glasgow Central, but he is uh, fighting hard. I know some other people in the east of Scotland who, for Labour who think that they have got a very good chance of certainly getting into double figures. Now, we'll see. I mean, it's early days yet. But the SNP's difficulties um, can only play to Labour. And indeed, I've, talk, I, I've uh, in research for my previous book, How, How Britain Ends, I talked to a, a number of Tories in Scotland and said, what would save the union? And two prominent Tories told me a Labour government. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's fascinating. Um, I, I should point out, in the absence of uh, someone to sort of represent the SNP point of view in this um, conversation, that this makes quite a hefty assumption that this trajectory that the SNP are on at the moment will continue rather than the equally likely scenario that the boat will steady and and they will rise again in their polling. Um, so, yes, I yeah. agree with I agree with so, you. There. So uh, I, I think I think Labour Labour is making quite a big assumption, but I, I understand why. They're sort of trying to ride the the wave, trying to create sort of momentum because Part of their doing well in Scotland is, I guess, convincing people that they're capable of doing well in Scotland, and so and also that's capable of forming the government in, in in London. I think one of part of the SNP narrative has always been, we're going to have a Tory government, whatever you do, and the, therefore we have to separate. And if that seems less likely, then Labour may do do well. And obviously, we'll see. I mean, your your caveats are all right, absolutely right there, Alex. Yasmin, um, UKIP or the Brexit Party or its latest iteration reform is no longer really a political force in any part of the country. I saw a headline that said, oh, they failed to break through. I mean, <laughs> that's a kind reading of the situation. Um, does that mean that Labour is now appealing to those voters? Or have the Tories just absorbed you keepers with their stop the boats rhetoric? I guess what I'm trying to, to find out is your sense of whether Labour are beginning to recapture some of those people or whether the Tories have shifted to the right and lost loads of people from the centre, as it were. Hmm, yeah, I mean, it, it was my impression that it was the latter. I read the failure of UKIP slash Brexit slash reform slash whatever iteration may come next um, in the locals kind of struck me as perhaps the only silver lining for the Tories, um, because it seems to suggest at least that perhaps Sunak doesn't have to worry about facing a rebellion from kind of like an insurgent sort of populist right corner of the party. I think it's 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 an indication to, to your point, as you just said, that on kind of the big issues that those parties would have capitalized on, whether it's, you know, Brexit or boats or what or culture war issues, that the, the Tories have kind of effectively kind of covered those bases in a way that's kind of made those smaller kind of more activisty parties a bit redundant. Um, the downside, of course, to Rachel's point, I think, is that, you know, the, the issues that perhaps voters who would have supported those parties they, that they care about, whether it's it's boats or or any of the other issues, is that those aren't necessarily going to be the defining issues of the general election in the way that Brexit was in, in, in you know, in 2019, for example. And and I think obviously you know others on, on this podcast have, have talked about in, in past podcasts um, have have talked about you know the, the difficulty that the Tories are going to face even with those issues like the boats. So so in that respect, I think it's it's kind of a 
poison chalice in a way, like <laughs> they've made those parties redundant by taking on a, a lot of those issues. Um, but, but those issues may not necessarily be the ones that voters care about deeply. They're- it's a fallacy, I think, to think that stuff people care about passionately is also the, the top stuff they care about, right? Because it's not always the case. Rachel, Ed Davis, Liberal Democrats, were having a field day. They unveiled a giant clock, declared that time is up for Sunak. I understand a cuckoo was supposed to pop out. It didn't in the end. Um, are there excellent results, do you think, a sign that voters have finally forgiven, forgiven them for the coalition years? Are they sort of rehabilitated? Firstly, I think the Lib Dems are great when it comes to props and puns so yeah they had the the time's up clock without the cuckoo fine but they had the uh, the smashing the blue wall as well they love a visual pun don't they uh they did very well they got they're currently on uh pulling at 16 percent, which is the highest rating since 2019 when obviously there was a complete wipeout and their leader lost lost their seat but i think the thing that you've got to remember with the lib dems is that similar to, to the Greens, actually, how well they do locally is not a good indication of how well they're going to do nationally. They are very, very good at uh, targeting local issues, particularly, and it's really sad to say this with the Lib Dems, around opposing developments and, and house buildings. That, that's how they won Cheshire and Amersham. That's really sad because if you look at the Lib Dems on a national level one of their big policies is solving the housing crisis or it was anyway and and helping young people to be able to afford to have somewhere to live in this country Mm. and then you look at what they're doing and how they're winning in local areas and it's all about your lovely garden you don't want that to be spoilt by a block of flats that some ungrateful graduates might live in um similarly with with the greens like great on on local issues but um the greens did exceptionally well we have to say i mean they're their best locals ever they gained 241 seats um, including from Tories in sort of rural seats like Mid-Suffolk. Yeah. How how do they fit into the mix, do you think? Well, I think people see political parties as a, as a spectrum and you've got obviously the Tories on the right and then you've got Labour on the left and you've got Lib Dems way to the left. So it's very confusing for people that a seat might flip from Tory to Greens without going through anything in between. But actually, if you look at the things that people are voting on, it's about, you know, preserving their local community or not having sewage dumped on their doorstep. And these are wealthier people, perhaps who have gardens, who have views, who like the countryside, who believe in conserving in the sort of conservationist way that that their their, their local village or their local way of life. Yeah, that that is appealing on on a sort of green level. But again, I don't think you can extrapolate that to the national scene a really good example of this was one of the the green leaders was asked about solar power and why the greens have opposed solar power and and wind farms in various places and he went have we have we done that yes the greens have done that in local areas they fight a very very good local game but when it comes to actually the big national questions they don't have i i think a sort of cohesive coherent election strategy that will help them win more seats in westminster that's just that's my prediction Waco, Texas, was the site of a federal siege of a religious cult in 1993, which ended disastrously and gave rise to many of the deep state anti-federal tropes that still persist. 
Well, pretty much on the 30th anniversary of that event, Donald Trump decided to kick off his primary campaign there, a real statement of intent by the giant Tito that he won't be any cuddlier in 2024. Meanwhile, his potential challenger, Ron DeSantis, is spending his time getting into legal spats with Disney, who are famously uncartoon-like when it comes to litigation. Bringing it all together, the radical right's most tireless pom-pom shaker Tucker Carlson is mired in lawsuits and scandal after being fired by Fox News. Yasmin, we have to start with you, obviously, on this one. <laughs> We're talking about your bin fire now. Um, Trump wants to stand in an election in whose rules he has no belief and which he, he claims is rigged. How will that manifest for more moderate Republicans? I mean, Biden may not have won them over, but is there a nervousness about Trump still? It's a good question. And my the immediate question that sprung to mind was, where are these moderate Republicans? I'm not saying that they don't exist. I, I have friends who would who'd probably, in, in another era, class themselves as, as moderate Republicans or perhaps in, in 2016 and 2020, the, the never Trumpers. But, but I think, you know, if you're really trying to assess the Republican Party today, I don't think there's any room left for, for the moderates. I, I think they've left um, for good. And, and if there's a path back for them in the next election, I, I don't think that they're going to find it with with kind of the, the contenders. Um, you, you look at you look at Trump, you know, the, the two people leading in the polls for the Republican candidacy are Trump, who, who's declared his candidacy. And we, we, could, we were all very familiar with him. And, and there's Ron DeSantis, who has not declared. But, but on certain issues like abortion is even further to the right of Trump. Um, I think Trump is, is kind of more quiet on that issue, or at least is, is spent less time on that issue. So I don't think that they kind of matter as much in, in a way, or I don't necessarily think that they're going to be the ones deciding this. If you look at the polling, um, I think it was, there was a recent poll from, um, I think I want to say it was NBC that said that two thirds of Republican primary voters um, are are willing to stand behind Trump in in a in a rematch between Biden and Trump, and and actually De DeSantis really doesn't appear to be pulling the support that I think a lot of people thought he would. His latest legal trouble with Disney actually stems from allegations that he made in his own <laughs> memoir. <laughs> I mean, didn't his lawyers go through it? Who knows. Trump can paper over his incompetence with bluster and populist guff, but can DeSantis do that, or is his race over before it's even began, do you think? It's been really interesting to see some of the coverage around DeSantis. He's not someone that I followed particular or I followed particularly closely, but what I have seen is it's been reported that he interestingly seems to be facing a lot of the scrutiny that more traditional candidate Republican candidates are facing. Um, so almost as though Republicans are kind of grading Trump on a curve. And I think that partially perhaps comes down to the fact that I do think Trump is a very charismatic figure, hate to say it, but I think he he does, you know, there's an appeal that he has among his base of supporters. And I don't think DeSantis has that same level of charisma. And I think we saw that even just based on his visit to the UK recently. I mean, the, the reports coming out of his international visit, he went to Israel, he went to the UK, and he may have gone elsewhere, I can't remember, but the reviews were not good. Um, so so I do think that that he will struggle 
to compete in a way. And he has tried to compete in a lot of the the kind of culture war issues, I think, with trans rights, with abortion rights, um, with the death penalty um, in, in his state of Florida. I don't necessarily know if those are going to be enough to pull traditional Trump supporters away from from the former president. Yes, I think if you've only heard the build-up to Ron DeSantis from sort of uh, his media proxies, then actually seeing Ron DeSantis in action is quite a letdown. <laughs> he's a he's a much paler character than you would be led to believe. Gavin, Nikki Haley was first out of the blocks in declaring her candidacy for the Republicans, and her polling is worse than both DeSantis and Trump's. Um, how much more room is there for other contenders? One could argue that a crowded Republican field in 2016 worked in Trump's favour. It did uh, then. I, I, I should say I was at the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas uh, for the siege uh, a long time ago. And I had my own moment of revelation uh, while all that was going on. It was quite horrific. And my moment of revelation was that as someone who lived in America for a decade and loved the place and but uh, from a European background... I bought into one of the founding myths of the United States, but I forgot that there were two or didn't realize there were two. So I bought into the idea of the Enlightenment and Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers. And I'd kind of forgotten about the Mayflower and the the Pilgrim Fathers and God's chosen people and, uh, you know, the witch trials and so on. And I suddenly realized that in Waco, where the Branch Davidians believed all kinds of rather strange things to my taste, at least, that there was another America that I had to discover. Now, Trump, miraculously, it seems to me, taps into that because he is not, let's put it this way, he wouldn't have fitted in very well with the original pilgrims, but he taps into people who are prepared to believe him, even though he is clearly lying. And that's a quite an extraordinary uh, achievement. It's it's the sort of Chico Marx uh, achievement, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? And that charisma, as Yasmin rightly says, uh, still cuts through and it cuts through on the, the daily news round. And that's one of the reasons why he became president of the United States. So I think uh, he's clearly damaged. He is in some ways his own worst enemy. But I have heard people defend him against his own actions, the, the things he's actually did, the, the, the famous horrendous pussy-grabbing tape from years ago. I, I had Republican women telling me that was just men's locker room talk. Well, you know, uh, that's quite extraordinary, it seems to me. So uh, I, would, I certainly wouldn't uh, write him off. He still makes headlines, and he knows, after all, how to change the world's conversation with one tweet. He's certainly got more charisma than DeSantis, who is frankly a bit bit of a bore. Rachel, in the UK, the right-wing press is being no kinder to Keir Starmer, um, despite polls in the local election suggesting people care a lot more about their material circumstances that we were discussing than culture war stuff. Um, so what what keeps feeding this Americanization of our of our debate? Is it straight up just right-wing money coming over from America? Or why are they still trying to make culture wars a thing? So I think it's both less sinister and in a way more sinister than that, in that I don't think most of it is a deliberate effort. Obviously, there is a deliberate effort as well. But I think it's being driven really by social media. And I was talking to a political scientist about this. 
about um how twitter and youtube and and that has has changed politics like it used to be if you were a backbench conservative mp or a minor republican congressman and you wanted to get on tv you had to do that through the party you had to kind of wait for the tv stations to come to the party and say we want someone to speak on this issue and then they'd put you forward now you just have to tweet something outrageous or take a video of yourself mm. visiting a food bank saying that you know everyone there is secretly having McDonald's 3 days a week or or whatever and you can go from total obscurity to being an overnight sensation at which point the TV stations will start calling you at which point the newspapers will start cover- covering what you've said and said well maybe you have a point about food banks maybe you have a point about children being taught how to choke each other safely in sex and relationship ed classes mm. which by the way doesn't happen and isn't true that's a sort of conspiracy theory but it is the technology that means that somebody can build their brand overnight simply by being really outrageous and provocative that has changed the way the news cycle covers politics and created culture wars where really that there aren't any or there isn't an issue and the only thing i would say to reassure people on that front is is two things one is that twitter is becoming increasingly unusable thanks to elon musk so that's a good thing um but the other one is that go back to the local elections one of the things we learn is that when people are really worried about whether they can pay the bills and the state of the nhs and can they get a doctor's appointment doesn't really matter how they feel about trans rights or immigrants coming here on boats they, they will vote for what's actually important in their lives, not what the sensationalist, provocateur politicians tell them they ought to be caring about instead. And I I guess that's reassuring. Okay, so can I ask all of you just to finish off? Um, Rachel, you've written in the past, we have to be careful using labels like fascist, but also that sometimes they're appropriate. I think it was a Marine Le Pen article, and you pointed out that she has been convicted of being a fascist, Um, (laughs) or rather she lost a defamation suit because the court found that she is a fascist. Um, So... What we're seeing in the Republican Party is a, is a true descent into authoritarianism. I mean, a call for minimal government, the use of force, a rolling back of women's and minority rights, guns, homesteading, a deliberate undermining of the election. So what do we call that? I mean, what do, what, how do we name that without putting loads of people off, basically, by, by saying, are you saying I'm a fascist because I support Trump? I kind of always understood it. I mean, I sort of look at Hungary and the sort of the kind of illiberal sort of wannabe authoritarians and sort of that seems to be what the the Re- Trump Republican Party aspires to. Um, I, I don't think they're quite there yet. I don't think they're quite far along. I mean, there's certainly some elements that are that are copycats, but I think they they aspire to having the level of control that Viktor Orban's Fidesz party has. And by level of control, I mean, you know, over over the media, um, the kind of the unlevel playing field. I mean, to an extent, you can argue that that kind of already exists to an extent with gerrymandering in the United States. But um, I, I kind of always sort of thought of them as like wannabe authoritarians, perhaps not quite there, but. I think there's a Christian nationalist Mm. angle to it as well. I think there's something very religious about it. And actually, you can kind of see that the the religious fundamentalist aspect coming through in the fact that Andrew Tate, who is a professional alt-right misogynist, has also just converted to 
Islam and is quite cosy with some radical Islamists as, as well. So oh, the, good, I missed that there episode. Were, there, were, there were forums on, on the dark spaces in the internet where some of this stuff comes comes full circle. But certainly a lot of the authoritarianism when it comes to reproductive rights, immigrants and sort of the, the kind of people who should be allowed to freely exist in society, I think that's driven from some quite dark religious fundamentalism. And I think maybe we should explore that a bit more when it comes to America rather than necessarily looking to parallels in, in European history. Well, it's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for the soothing mental balm of escape routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week? Gavin? I've been playing a lot of tennis and I've been watching a lot of Succession and I noticed that Private Eye suggested that the uh, plot of Succession was plagiarised from uh, the uh, a certain family of other people who own newspapers, but it might be the other way around. So anyway, that's what <laughs> I've been doing. Uh, how about you, Yasmin? Um, I'm in the middle of watching Netflix's Bridgerton prequel, Queen Charlotte, um, and I will never, ever forgive Shonda Rhimes for making me and many others simp over the tea taxing King George. Um, it's very, very good. Would highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Rachel? I can't believe no one has mentioned Eurovision yet. It is Eurovision this Saturday. I have, I have full on Eurovision fever. So I'm going to be obviously watching that while dressing up and playing six drinking games at once. But in the meantime, I've been getting into the spirit of it by listening to some of my favourites from, from previous years. And anytime I feel sad, I just play Think About Things, which was the, meant to be the Icelandic entry for 2020. Just watch it. Watch it on a loop. It's hypnotising. It's wonderful. That's brilliant. Well, I went to watch Evil Dead Rise uh, at the weekend and it was very scary and very gory in the best ways of the tradition of that franchise. I would highly recommend it. And I've also been watching Colin from Accounts on uh, BBC iPlayer. I don't know if anyone's recommended it before. It is genuinely the sweetest thing you will have ever watched. If every single episode doesn't leave you slightly teary and going, oh, oh, they really meant for each other, I don't, you're basically dead inside. So. That's my recommendation, Colin from Accounts. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks for joining me to Rachel Canliffe. Thank you. Gavin Esler. Thank you very much. And Yasmin Sarhan. Thanks for having me. We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Don't forget, we're live on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday, 24th of May. Visit leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. We'll see you there. In the meantime, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Alex Andreu with Rachel Cunliffe, Yasmin Saran and Gavin Esla. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones, Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production.